Rude Awakenings, Chapter 11, read by Achan Sutito and Nick Scott. Our two pilgrims, having crossed the river Ganges, are now walking south towards Nalanda, Rajgir and Bodhgaya. Chapter 11 Dark Angel Achen Suchito We are now in the second week of glowing December, the time that the Indian climate has at its most benign. The heat of the day goes down to a sunny English summer, the nights are autumnal and the light is golden. I felt grateful for its gentleness. The light no longer stabbed my eyes when I gazed over the landscape. I could even handle looking up at the birds on the telegraph wires silhouetted against the pastel blue sky. Although those more distant were just fuzzy black blobs, the nearer ones, rollers and red-vented bulbuls with forked tail, were quite pretty. I was starting to get mellow. India, for all its rough edges, had looked after us well. Baldarichak had offered us a chilly night on a table outside the hut of Ram's cousin. In the morning, after a glass of hot milk, the family group had stood around us silently watching us pack our bags. The children were like perching birds, bare-legged with their heads and upper bodies wrapped in blankets. All they could offer was their attention. I tried a few phrases of Hindi, which they accepted without comment. The metal row took us a couple of miles to a warm sunrise, a small market village, and a glass of tea. There, Nick paced around, looking at a wide dirt track that branched off from the road, inspecting his map, muttering aloud, It must be... squinting at the horizon, looking down the metal road, saying, Hilsa? Hilsa? to passing strangers. All part of the conjuring act that I had ceased trying to understand. That must be northeast. And there's a lot of cycle tracks going that way. It must be... My place was to stand poised for the decision, with an agreeable smile that I hoped was supportive rather than condescending, and then follow. Somewhere, in whatever direction, we go for arms, there was water everywhere, and at the end of the day we'll be in another field or village more or less the same as where we started from. Nick Scott Trying to find our way using the maps I brought with me, wasn't like map reading in England, where you could note something from the map and then just follow it. As ever in India, nothing was that certain. I had three maps, a modern German one of eastern India, up to date, but on far too small a scale to be of much use away from the main roads, a commercial Indian one of Bihar state, on a bigger scale, but crudely made and very unreliable 
and the copies of the maps I brought from the British India office. These were on a large scale, full of detail, but over 50 years out of date. The three maps hardly ever agreed with each other, and only occasionally, even between them, agreed with what was on the ground. Route planning had thus to be a tentative business. I'd combined the information from all three with various bits of advice we got from locals as we went along. As most people had never been more than a few miles down the path, this advice was usually even more unreliable than the maps. With all of that, we would try to make our way. As we proceeded, my mind would go again and again through the same mental cycle. It would start with anticipation. We will go there and along this path to that place, and we will see this and that and so on. Then for some reason or other, we'd not be able to. A path wouldn't exist, or there'd be a village, river or whatever where it wasn't supposed to be. So I would get annoyed, only to find out that what we ended up doing was just as good and interesting as that which I had planned. India is great at putting a spanner into the planning and anticipating mind. It is that mind state that gets in the way of being open to what is happening. Using the maps to get away from tarmac roads didn't mean we'd got away from the Indian bicycle. Once we were on dirt paths, I really appreciated what those bicycles were all about. Old sit-up-and-beg Rileys with that heavy build and lots of big springs under the saddle. Their thick tyres, padded seats and the one low gear meant that they could go anywhere in the countryside, even meandering their slow way along the small paths running along the top of the mud walls between the paddy fields. We were trying to head southeast, but in fact our route wandered a lot, with us sometimes going east and sometimes south. It would have been quicker to follow the direct roads, but this way was more peaceful, and we were amidst the real rural India, where everything went at a much slower and more steady pace. The landscape was dotted with people working in the fields, which now had growing crops. Many were raising water for irrigation using horizontal tree trunks, hollowed out to look like long, thin canoes. One end of these was open and rested on the lip of the drainage ditch to be filled. The closed end was suspended by a rope from a leaning pole above the water to be raised. A man stood by each one, dressed in a soil-stained off-white cloth of a labourer. Putting his weight on the suspended end, it would drop, bending the pole and dip into the water. When they took their weight off, the pole would unbend, the hollow trunk would rise and water would run out of it into the ditch. He would step on and off the trunk over and over again, creating a slow rhythmic creaking accompanied by a gentle sloshing as the water ran into the ditch. That sound was everywhere we went through the countryside. Achen Suchito December 8th Chula Flattened dried rice and curd 
from a few farm workers on an old estate. In the afternoon, a man cycling along the track that wound around the paddy field bade us follow him and led us to within a few miles of our destination, Hilsa. He left us recommending that we spend the night in the Kali temple in the small town. The idea caused a shiver of alarm. I could almost imagine the clamour and the reek of blood. Kali! Hideous fangs and long tongue protrude from a blood-dripping mouth. Human skulls are draped in a garland around her neck. Animal sacrifices are performed in her name. Trampling down the body of her consort, the Supreme Lord Shiva, she is Shiva's energy that eventually must destroy even Shiva's form. Call her fate, karma, or all-devouring time. She is the power that shapes and undoes lives that we long to call our own. It was dark when we found Hilsa. What a ghost town. Hardly anyone around. Hilsa had no street lights, no street either. The track got muddier and more well used until, out of the darkness, the forms of buildings materialised. Nick didn't favour dragging ourselves around this murk looking for a temple and asked some ghost for the Dak bungalow instead. Dak bungalows were a vestige of the Raj. In the days before hotels, they were built as places where travelling civil servants could spend the night. A caretaker, or chokidar, lived in the bungalow, and he would guard the place, keep it clean, and cater to the travellers. Dak bungalows still exist in many small towns, and by some stroke of luck, although we like to attribute it to benign providence, there was a Dak bungalow just a few minutes' walk away from where we had entered the town. It, too, was swathed in darkness. Nick swung the garden gate open and we proceeded up the path by torchlight. The heap on the veranda must be the Chokidar, asleep, deeply asleep. Neither calls nor shouts nor torchlight could wake him. Was he all right? As Nick shone the torch directly in his face, he moaned slightly but made no movement. Had he been attacked there in the darkness? Nick stepped over him, opened the front door, which wasn't locked, and began inspecting the room. Electricity's off. Do you have a candle, Bunty? He's drunk. I was wondering whether this procedure was ethically correct, but Nick had no doubts. I'll pay in the morning. And we moved in. A simple, clean room, and it connected to a bathroom where one could get clean, by splashing water from a tank, and even a toilet. There are also a couple of hard beds available for us to spread our sleeping bags on. I lit up a few candles, bathed, and then anointed and dressed my throbbing foot as preliminaries to the evening meditation. Well, 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 fortune seemed to be smiling on our good efforts. A few feeble moans ended the meditation, followed by the sound of the Chokidar stumbling and crashing around. He had come too, enough to realise that something had happened, but still too smashed to know what. He couldn't find the door, and the subsiding groan indicated he had lapsed back into unconsciousness. Poor Chokidar. He was clean out of luck. 
In the morning he tried to pocket the charge for the room, but Nick knew the system of payment was too sharp for him. See, Bunty, you have to sign that book and write in how much you have paid. When I looked in it, most people have paid 30 rupees. He's taken the book so he can pocket the money himself. Das rupee! I give you 10 rupees. Or you give me book and I give you 30 rupees. He generally give the Chokidar 10 rupees back, sheesh. No! No book, no 30 rupees! I felt sorry for the Chokidar. His bad night was being followed by an unsuccessful morning. But the son and Nick were up and moving on. Within a couple of minutes they led us straight into the Kali temple, which was near where we had entered Hilsa. The temple was paradoxical. The image on the shrine, six-armed and brandishing weapons like some giant demonic spider, face split by a savage grimace, was ferocious. Yet the temple was quiet and serene. The old priest, upright in bearing and mild-eyed, beckoned for us to stay and gave us a little food. His English, carefully enunciated in soft, faltering phrases, wasn't up to explaining much. The only fragments of the conversation that stuck in my mind were that his brother was working in California. But during that half an hour or so, Carly revealed herself a little. The dark goddess obviously had a bright aspect. Flowers adorned her shrine, and white cloths had been draped around her arms. A woman was making ritual offerings in little dishes and chanting to her. All was sweetness and blessings. It could have been Sunday in an English church with a village lady offering flowers to one of those gory images that symbolise the love of God for humanity. Yes, Jehovah had no more scruples about ripping people apart than Carly. Come to think of it, following the Dummer was no pushover either. The angels of transcendence have their dark side. If you could take it, all this getting beaten up was about giving up ownership of the birth-death thread. The impeccable few who let go come to a life beyond the web. Flawed aspirants grasp wildly and go under in the darkness. In the eyes of the transcendent, that's fair. Compassionate, even. So... Let it flow. Nick Scott We left Hilsa on a wide dirt track heading east. It was easy walking, and in the late morning he took us into a village. We stopped in the centre under an old Bodhi tree surrounded by a raised platform of packed hearth with a small shrine at its base. The villagers who collected around us asked if we had eaten and then brought us some food. There were the usual questions about what we were doing and where we were going and they led to other questions. Ajun Suchito's Hindi was now good enough to give simple answers. They asked him about problems in their lives and for the first time he was able to talk Dharma in Hindi. My own Hindi was still limited to practical things, 
like asking how much something cost. So all I could pick up was the people's appreciation for what Ajahn Suchita was saying. The basic Buddhist teachings were just as relevant despite the very different culture. After all, they were originally taught in India. Later they brought cups of tea and encouraged us to wash under the village pump. When we eventually left, I took with me a lovely feeling of peacefulness and openness from that village, away from the urgency of the roads. We continued along the broad dirt track that brought us there. Although we'd rested and the worst of the day's heat was now over, we found the afternoons walking hard. I was still feeling run down, and each day a weariness would overcome me after a few hours walking. Arjun Suchito was affected too, since Patna had ceased setting such a hard pace and now stopped at the slightest excuse. He seemed dazed, a bit like a punch-drunk boxer after fifteen inconclusive rounds. I suppose I must have looked much the same. I now reckoned we were suffering from protein deficiency. In Patna, I had brought as much protein as I could. Bags of cashew nuts, boiled eggs, curd, and we had felt better when we set out again. But now we were on the road, there was less opportunity to supplement our diet. In the mornings, whenever we could, we would stop in a tea store and have a plate of curry chickpeas as a small breakfast. Now I just ordered them. I didn't bother asking. Although he was slightly dismissive of my concerns, Ajahn Suchito had let go of the idea of trying to survive on arms food alone. The chickpea dishes had much more protein than the runny dal that came with the rice at midday. That was mostly water. I began to suspect that the midday meal was for the locals a meal of stodge and that they ate most of their protein at other times. In the evening, eggs were for sale from little stalls on wheels, the light from their kerosene lamps illuminating a tray of them, a flat pan for frying them on and salt and spices to flavour them with. We were not eating in the evenings and we were hardly ever in the villages at that time, but that didn't stop me fantasising about them. My body so yearned for protein that I would find myself dwelling on the thought of an egg, even just a simple hard-boiled one, over and over again as we walked along. We were cutting across country and as we wanted to be at Nalanda in time for the meal, I was particularly concerned to get it right. First, Asusuchito asked a man taking a water buffalo to the fields, who told us in Hindi that Nalanda was an hour away. And then, a bit later, I asked someone else, this time a chap on a bicycle who spoke English. He told me that it was eight kilometres to Nalanda, which was much more than an hour's walk. And that is how it went on. Each time we asked, we'd get a different estimate of how far it was often an increase on the last one, until I began to suspect that we were either going round in circles or that Nalanda was retreating before us. Finally, after walking for several hours at an ever-increasing speed, as we began to worry that we were never going to get there in time, I stopped an educating-looking chap. His reply was very confident. This road is leading to Nalanda, which is two and a half kilometres from here. The exactness of that two and a half convinced me 
that this time the information must be correct, and that the others had all been wrong. So we set off walking even faster, as we had very little time left. We'd been going for only five minutes when we came round a corner to see the ruins of Nalanda showing just beyond some trees, only two fields away. Although we were never quite certain where we were, we knew when we were near a Buddhist holy site by the change in the way people treated us. The friendliness and helpfulness we experienced as we went through the rest of the countryside would disappear. Instead of being seen as pilgrims to be helped, we were now seen as a source of income. To the locals, we were just more of the wealthy foreign tourists and pilgrims they got to see so often. At the holy sites, the people did recognise my companion was a monk, but they'd seen too many foreign monks with video cameras, riding in rickshaws and handling money to be inspired. This time the path led through a village, where we were spotted by a cycle rickshaw waller, who pulled up beside us to offer a lift. We said no, but he just kept on pestering us. Then several young children came running, with their small hands outstretched, and crying out in high-pitched voices, One rupee! One rupee! Then, as we turned into the lane leading to the Thai Vihara, our intended destination, there was a sadhu sitting against a low wall. He had long dreadlocks tied in a gigantic knot. His face, arms and legs were daubed with white, and he was wrapped in cloths of a variety of bright colours. Leaning by his side was a trident, festooned with red rags. He was by far the most impressive-looking sadhu we'd seen, and I thought he would make a great photo. I got my camera out and pointed at it, then at him, so to ask his permission. His response was immediate. He sat bolt upright and barked out, 112 rupees and 18 paisa. Evidently, he had also met tourists before. Achan Suchito Past Nari and Nur Sarai, we joined the road that comes from Patna to Nalanda. In the time of the Buddha, it must have been the main route between Savati, the capital of Kosala, and Rajagaha, the capital of Markata. Along this road, pilgrims would have hurried to the holy places farther south, or to stay in the great university of Nalanda, sometimes for years on end copying sutras and studying the Dhamma. But to me, Nalanda was principally the place where there was a Thai monastery where I could rest my right foot and let it heal. I determined to do as little walking as possible. What Thai Nalanda will be an excellent place to recuperate. Beyond its surrounding railings loomed a four- or five-storied building capped with a long roof, down the ridges of which gigantic stylized serpents stretched. Our island of peace was surrounded by swaying young trees that beckoned like nymphs. But at the gate we were welcomed by the hounds of hell, the manic clamour of the temple dogs, 
produced some shouting, whistling, and the sounds of sticks hitting concrete. Two dark faces appeared at the railings. The first, that of an elderly Indian man, was rapidly eclipsed by that of a Thai woman with a shaven head, a nun, or mere chi, her dark skin standing out against the whiteness of her robes. Okay, okay, bante! Her voice was hoarse and American accented. Just a minute! The dogs! Getting the furious beasts under control took some more hollering in Hindi, the Indian man whirling around with his stick, but then she pulled the metal gate open and hurried us across the courtyard to the building. You gotta be careful of the monkeys, Bunte! Large Hanuman monkeys gazing down innocently from the trees in the monastery compound. They come down and bite you! Don't go outside the building without a stick! Here's a stick! They're real dangerous, Bunte! But they never attacked her. A few days later I saw her dozing in the sun in the monastery courtyard with two Hanumans in attendance, one checking her white sweater for any insects, one tenderly inspecting her scalp with careful fingers. They loved her. I found out that it was her offerings of food that had encouraged these lawless creatures to stay here. In their fenced-off area the dogs would go wild whenever the monkeys descended from the trees, yelping in fury at the mild-faced Hanumans. But the omnipotent Thai nun had the dogs under control too, and a couple of Indian attendants who scurried briskly at her command. No wonder she was hoarse. The daily administration depended on her voice. The main activity of the monastery was to cater to the tour buses of Thais who were undertaking a rapid pilgrimage of the Buddhist holy places and didn't want to come into contact with anything Indian if they could possibly avoid it. The monastery, or what, is a familiar icon in the Thai mind. It provides the opportunity to make merit. To create the skillful comer through acts of generosity that will bring good fortune in the future. The Wat is also a storehouse of Thai Buddhist culture and manners. To a Thai abroad, the Wat is Thailand and is generously supported to remain as such. No matter that for most of the time the only monastic resident was one nun, the tour buses brought their own bhikkhus with them to be accommodated overnight in the simple but well-ordered rooms of the Wat and given dishes of well-cooked Thai-style food the next day before proceeding to the next Thai haven, Wat Thai Bodhagaya, or Wat Thai Sarnat. Form and merit mean a lot to Thais. Mirchi Ali could call down the support for both, even in India. That was impressive. After being given a room and an unbelievable meal, I made my way to the roof of the residence block. I felt I could give my wounds some air there. The sore had grown larger with the sixty-mile walk from Patna and had been joined by another. The soles of my feet and the heels were cracked and black. Then there were other kinds of repairs that had to be undertaken at each stop. Now the robes were showing signs of wear and tear, particularly the sangati, the double-thick extra robe that is the third of the bhikkhus allowed robes. The one I had was over ten years old, 
patched and repatched. Its main body was so old that mending it was like patching an overripe tomato. The sewing thread tore new holes in it, and one had to compromise with something between a darn and a lattice of stitches. To be truthful, a certain embarrassment about my worn robes and torn feet kept me on the roof. I felt too lumbering and coarse for the graceful manners of civilised Thai society. The times that I did venture down, even with my battered robes worn as neatly as I could manage, and walking in small, composed steps, I was still too big and ungainly. Compared to them, I felt like a wild ape. The visiting elder bhikkhus in immaculate, glowing, russet robes seemed uninterested, or perhaps uneasy, but would respond with cool politeness. Their female lay followers would kneel and bow and address me respectfully in angelic, fluting tones. When they heard my few clumsy phrases of Thai, they responded in delicate English. And they were always impressed when they found that I was a forest bhikkhu and a disciple of Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Sumato. One of the tour guides, concerned about my wounds, offered me some orange tincture. At least they made my foot look pretty. Retreating to the roof, I could be at ease with my tears and tatters, wash my robes and bandages and hang them out to dry, sit in the sun, and look over at Nalandar in the distance. There, in the 5th century CE, sponsored and supported by the Gupta emperors, had arisen the Mahavihara, a great residence comprising several Buddhist monasteries whose sole activity was study. What was now just a heap of bricks had been one of the finest blossoms in the religion that had evolved out of the Buddha's teaching. Homage to the perfection of wisdom, the lovely, the holy. Here, O Shariputra, form is emptiness, and the very emptiness is form. Emptiness does not differ from form, nor does form differ from emptiness. Whatever is form, that is emptiness. Whatever is emptiness, that is form. The same is true of feelings, perceptions, impulses, and consciousness. Where there is emptiness, there is neither form, nor feeling, nor perception, nor impulse, nor consciousness. The patronage of Ashoka was the prime condition that allowed the Buddha's teachings to develop into a religion, earning it fabulous endowments, prestige, as well as the jealousy of the Brahmins. And despite occasional periods of persecution under succeeding monarchs, Buddhism and its many capable exponents filled a contemplative, philosophical and devotional space with a vigour that the Vedas and Upanishads could not provide. By the beginning of the common era, India was coming into a new age, 
trade routes connected to the Asiatic Greeks with their philosophies, the growing Christian worldview of Rome, as well as the evolved culture of China. Grecian-styled Buddha images were created for the sake of recollection and veneration. Some people argue that the Buddha was of a different nature than the merely mortal. His real, undying essence had manifested a dream body in order to present teachings to the world. In this new, divine framework, saviour figures appeared called bodhisattvas. And during these and succeeding centuries after the Buddha's death, his teachings became the subject of an equally lively revision. There is no ignorance, nor extinction of ignorance, nor suffering, nor origination, nor stopping, nor path. There is no cognition, no attainment, and no non-attainment. The old teachings had pointed out that what we term a self is in reality empty of a cohesive, consistent and independent reality. The new teachings extended that analysis to every structure of reality, including any structure of teaching. This is prajna paramita, the perfection of wisdom, which cannot be expounded and learned nor isolated and described, nor stated in words, nor reflected upon by means of or in terms of any limited pattern of awareness. In the course of the next 800 years or so, Prajna Paramita was conceived as a truth gestated as a symbol, born as an image, and worshipped as a divinity. Over forty sutras, from the vast perfection of wisdom in one hundred thousand lines, down to the perfection of wisdom in one letter, were composed around her ineffability. Even though she represents the essential emptiness of all phenomena, her form was delightful. What can be more captivating to the contemplative than that ungraspable, ever-beyond, ever-present truth? She was called a goddess, and was one of the divinities who emerged to preside over Buddhism's second turning of the wheel, the Great Way, or Mahayana. Perhaps even the Gupta emperors, although Hindu, fell under her spell. They themselves were tolerant of Buddhism and recognised that Buddhist monks made very good scholars. Astronomy, logic, metaphysics and grammar were studied at Nalanda along with the Mahayana Sutras and commentaries. The brilliant expositions on emptiness by Nagarjuna, the Yogacharan presentation of a world that is purely mind-made and later the magical thunderbolt teachings of Tantra. All and much more were debated through the centuries at Nalandar. In that palace, old archetypes married new symbols to produce a pantheon of deities, Taras of various hue, of Alikateshvara, the compassionate one, 
thirteen-headed, thousand-armed and thousand-eyes, the better to serve all sentient beings. And his counterpart, Mahakala, the ferocious guardian of truth, black and wreathed in flames. They may have first appeared as literary personae in one of the vast sutras or tantric rituals that were composed in the first millennium of the common era. But by the end of it, they had at least as much substance as the old Vedic deities. In the tantric teachings that eventually developed at Nalandar, these powerful spiritual forces were to be visualized and even acted out in esoteric rituals. But Buddhism lost touch with the Samana lifestyle that had connected the Sangha to the ordinary people. In some of the later teachings, the lifestyle of the Sangha is presented as a dull-witted attachment to monasticism and the great bhikkhu disciples of the earlier texts appear as inept. Gautama the Buddha is one of millions of Buddhas in innumerable world systems, not a summoner subject to illness faring for arms around the Ganges plain. His teachings in his historical form were to be interpreted as a kind of primer, a lower path or small vehicle, to get people started who were too self-centred to attune to the compassion and grandeur of the higher teachings. Nalandar grew away from the living context of the Dhammavinya. The scholar monks didn't have to go on arms round or have contact with the ordinary people, and so the Turkic invaders who devastated Nalandar and slaughtered its inhabitants in 1200 hacked something that had already lost its roots. Buddhism had idealised into a vast pattern of images, concepts and rituals that were not immediately comprehensible to be seen by oneself, the touchstone of the Buddha's message. This meant that it had no more relevance to the lives of the majority of the populace than the evolving line of Vedic worship and Advaita Vedantic thought had absorbed it. Philosophically, you could even see the destruction of Nalandar as the culmination of Prajna's teaching. Form, having been revealed as essentially void, was dramatically swept away. In a dialectic that delighted in paradox, what finer tantric consort could there be for Prajna than Iktia Uddin Muhammad? an illiterate freebooter with arms like an ape. He was a demonic counterpoint to the goddess. When they met, form and emptiness shattered together. The neighbouring university monastery of Old Antipuri became the troops' headquarters from which they raided and sacked Nalandar. While a few teachers still lingered around the crippled body of the Mahavihara, there were very few ordinary people devoted to the Sangha to look after any monks who might have survived, and even fewer inspired to go forth themselves. Buddhism had moved on to Sri Lanka, China, Central and Southeast Asia. In India, it still lingered in a few fringe areas, but 1200 is the year that it ceased to have any effect on the mainstream of the culture. Lord.
ones who are thoroughly devoted to Prashna Paramita will not die suddenly or unexpectedly, neither from poison nor any kind of weapon, nor from fire, water, nor from violence of any kind, from any quarter. Unless they choose to manifest such suffering as a skillful teaching or as some other form of compassionate action. Destruction, suffering, compassion. In some respects, the goddess's teachings bore a striking resemblance to those of Mother Kali. Wasn't that Jesus in the background somewhere? Looking down from the roof was starting to give me vertigo. Nick Scott There were two meals a day at the Watt. One was at seven in the morning, and the other was just before midday. Both would be announced by the Mei Chi sounding a large gong and served in a room connected to the kitchen. And both meals were the same food, white rice with lots of different meat dishes. Sometimes there was also fish or eggs, and perhaps a small plate of raw vegetables. No exception to this heavy carnivorous diet was made for the breakfast. In fact, the vegetables were less likely then. We would sit on mats on the floor, Ajusachito sitting around a large table with three Thai monks who were also staying, and with all the food dishes, while I sat at a small table on my own with nothing on it but my plate. Thai monastic discipline is very strong on form, especially around food. This way the monks avoided any concern that the dishes had been handled by me without being formally offered back. As they finished each dish, it would be passed to me, first the rice, and then one dish of meat after another. At mealtimes one of the workers would be on guard with a broom in the courtyard to shoo away the monkers as we crossed to the dining hall. At other times we had to carry our sticks, Otherwise the monkeys would gang up with the dogs and rush to attack us, driving us back to the haven of the main building where they weren't allowed. Even with a stick in hand, it was a scary journey. The dogs would wake from their slumbers and start growling heavily, and then barking loudly. This would bring the monkeys scuttling across the ground, screeching even more loudly. Beating the stick on the ground would stop them, just out of range, but still screeching loudly until we made it through the gate. I left the Wat several times during our stay to visit the ruins at the main site. Ajahn Suchito only went the once. He was not really interested in Nalanda. Nalanda, though, must once have been a very impressive place. Even today the ruins are quite stunning and on a much grander scale than at any of the other holy sites we'd visited. Several enormous and very solid-looking temples tower above one their original outer ornate skin long gone, leaving tumbled red brickwork. Each of them contains a main shrine room, now empty, with flights of stairs leading up to it, and there are many smaller shrine rooms, 
as well as stupas containing small meditation cells set about them. There are now walkways for visitors that go round the temples and a path that leads to the top of the remains of the largest one. In places, the temples have been excavated to reveal that they grew slowly, like the stupas we saw elsewhere, enlarged by building a bigger version on each previous one. The rest of the site consists of 11 Buddhist monasteries, set out in an orderly row opposite the temples, each built to the same basic rectangular design we'd seen at Vajali. However, more of the walls were left here, and I could walk round and get a much better feel of how the monks once lived. Although the cells were small, they were bigger than at Vajali, and as well as recesses with a large slab of stone for a bed, there were also smaller alcoves for the monks' books. The cells faced inward, onto a large pillared courtyard, where once lectures and debates would have taken place, the teacher sitting on a raised stone slab at one end in front of the main shrine. At the opposite end was the porticoed entrance to the Vihara. All the outside walls were really substantial. According to the Chinese pilgrims, the Viharas were originally four stories high, with spires that licked the clouds. It was in these courtyards that Buddhist teachings and other studies were taught and debated. The level of teaching was really advanced. To gain admission to Nalanda, potential students had to answer a series of extremely difficult questions on Buddha Dharma. These were put to them by the gatekeeper, a scholar of high repute, who resided at the one main gate in the wall that encircled the whole complex. Only those who answered quickly and accurately would be allowed to enter. And according to Xuang Zhang, seven to eight out of every ten fail. Nalanda was thus more like a postgraduate college and with such renown that degrees were often forged. As well as study, it is believed bronze metalwork was also practised at Nalanda. Today, the museum attached to the site is full to overflowing with ornate bronze statues of various different bodhisattvas and the occasional image of the Buddha. There are rows and rows of them in a great variety of forms and flowing postures and all with broken noses. The invading Turks did that as they did with all heathen statues they found. The grandeur of the site and the complexity of the images mask something, however. The essence of the original Buddhist teachings seem to have gone, for me anyway. For all their artistic complexity, the images fail to convey to me any feeling of the sublime. The grandiose buildings were very impressive, but did not move my heart in the way the simple stupas at other sites had. My favourite place, in fact, was nearly cut off from the rest of the site. A large mound topped with a few Bodhi trees. It formed a small isthmus jutting out into the paddy fields. The distant sound of Indian pop music from the stalls at the entrance mingled with the calls of the farmers to their oxen and the sound of the gentle breeze in the Bodhi trees above me. A pair of black-shouldered kites would perch high in one of the trees, occasionally taking off to quarter the area. Hovering over the fields and diving to the ground, or gliding and then suddenly plummeting into the trees, hoping to catch small birds unawares. From this vantage point, I could see the visitors touring the Nalanda site. 
appearing and then disappearing among the ruins or climbing the main temples to peer out over the surrounding land. Western tourists in twos and threes, middle-class Indian families with their children scampering about, and large parties of Tibetans, mostly monks, who arrived by the coachload to be disgorged at the main gate. They would create a sea of maroon as they mingled at the entrance. Once inside, the sea would quickly disperse amongst the ruins. The monks were mostly young, either boys, youths or young men, and they had a lot of restless energy. They would be all over the site, calling to each other in Tibetan about what they had found. All of them, even the old monks, wore white sneakers. These seemed to have become part of the Tibetan monks' required clothing, along with watches, which are usually wound about with the mala beads they also wear on their wrists. The only Tibetan monk I can remember seeing without white sneakers on is the Dalai Lama, who wears sensible-looking brown leather shoes. It was the Dalai Lama who was responsible for the busloads of Tibetans being at Nalanda. Every winter he gives an empowerment at one of the Indian holy sites, and they were there to attend the next one. They would have come from the Tibetan refugee settlements, now all over India, or from Nepal, Sikkim and Bhutan in the Himalayas. They were combining the two-week empowerment with the opportunity to make a pilgrimage to the holy sites. For Tibetan Buddhists, like the Chinese, any pilgrimage had to include visiting Nalanda, as it was from Nalanda that many of their teachings originally came. Monks such as Swang Sang travel to India not just as a pilgrimage, but also to study at Nalanda and elsewhere, and to return home with religious scriptures. The journey was a very dangerous one, through unknown lands across the Gobi Desert and traversing the high Himalayan passes. From accounts in the Chinese chronicles, it is estimated that of all the pilgrims known to have left for India, only 42 are known to have returned in four centuries. Shuang Sang was captured and nearly killed by pirates. The account of his journey makes much of his fearlessness and unwavering resolution. But personally, I find the account of Ai Tsing, another Chinese pilgrim, more moving. He seemed more human in his reactions. He came 40 years later and was attacked while crossing through the hills of Bihar, suffering from an illness of the season. He had been forced to drop behind the large company he'd been travelling with, and late in the day, when the sun was about to set, some mountain brigades made their appearance. They robbed him of everything, including his clothes, and left him naked and very frightened. It was then that he recalled a rumour that in India, when they take the white man, they kill him to offer a sacrifice to heaven. When I thought of this tale, my dismay grew twice as much. Thereupon I entered into muddy hole and besmeared all my body with mud. I covered myself with leaves, and supporting myself on stick, I advanced slowly. And that is how, at the second watch of the night, he reached the village where his fellow travellers were staying. It was such pilgrims who spread the Mahayana teachings. Shuang Zhang became a great Dharma master in China, founding a new school of Buddhism based on the teachings he brought home. A Tibetan residence in Nalanda at the same time, Tonmi Sambuta, was responsible for converting the Tibetan king who proclaimed Buddhism the state religion when he'd returned. 
They also came from Sumatra, Java, Sri Lanka and Korea. Great teaching monasteries arose in those countries that were modelled on the Mahaviharas. Those in Tibet lasted a thousand years, until the Cultural Revolution. The Chinese pilgrims of the 7th century described the dedication and moral integrity of the monks residing at Nalanda. But with time this changed. Nalanda grew fabulously rich and monks began to study for material gain, for positions at court or for prestige. By the 10th and 11th century, Buddhism in India was mostly confined just to Bihar and Bengal, where the Mahivaras were. When the Muslim invasions of India occurred, the armies destroyed any temples they found and killed all the priests, or monks, in them. There is a graphic description by the Muslim historian Manhaju Sashij of the destruction of the Odantapura Mahavihara, which was near to Nalanda. Ikta Uddin Muhammad, with great vigour and audacity, rushed in at the gate of the fort and gained possession of the place. Great plunder fell into the hands of the victors. Most of the inhabitants of this place were Brahmins with shaven heads. They were put to death. Large numbers of books were found, and when the Mohammedans saw them, they called for some persons to explain the contents, but all of the men had been killed. It was discovered that the whole fort and city was a place of study. It happens to everything eventually. It all must be trampled underfoot, whether it is Tibetan culture being destroyed by the red cadres of the Cultural Revolution, British institutions being destroyed by Margaret Thatcher's handbag, or Buddhism being wiped from India by the Turkish invasions of the 12th and 13th century. Kali, in her many manifestations, will take them all. The good things just seem to last longer, but they too have to go, their goodness corrupted from within. Sometimes they can be like old trees, still outwardly impressive, but with rotting centres, waiting to fall with the next storm. The Buddha said that although his teachings would last 5,000 years, they too would eventually completely disappear. Achen Suchito at Nalanda, I felt most attuned to Mechi Ali. Brief conversations that we had when she wasn't attending to visitors or rushing around shouting at the attendants or the dogs or both revealed a sharp mind and a sincere heart. She'd come here ten years ago to study at the new University of Nalanda, an academy adjacent to the Wat. In fact, she'd gained a doctorate in Abhidharma. But those days had gone. Now she wasn't even that interested in learning meditation. Don't want to study anything, Nupante. Don't have time to read. Just like to sit in the sun and do nothing sometime. Sometime I like to live in a forest. That'd be nice. Maybe next year I go back to Thailand. Visit my mom. She keep writing to me. When I gonna come home? Been here ten years, Bante. Long time, Bante. 
like to see my mum again. She's going to die soon. I wondered how my mother was getting on. I had written a couple of times to her, and also to my brother who lived close by. Although I wasn't expecting a reply, the memory of her frailty nagged me. Perhaps I should have stayed in England to look after her. The last time I was overseas living in Thailand, my father died. They brought me a letter from him and a telegram at the same time. In the letter he said that he hadn't been feeling too well of late, but was looking forward to coming out to visit me in the monastery. The telegram was from my brother, saying that Dad had died that morning. That was hard to take. Dad had wished me well in my life as a bhikkhu. He had worked hard all his life, built his own business up from scratch, and began to realise in his sixties, with all the stress and anxiety and long hours, that he was caught in it, and that maybe his dropout son had a point. So after twenty-five years of some friendship, but little communication as adults, we would have met. So there was the regret. Then, when I went back to England to visit my recently widowed mother, my teacher died in Thailand. That was Ajahn Allen, so bright, calm and gentle in the Vihara in Chiang Mai when I first met him. It was evening, and the oil lamp was lit by the seat where he was sitting. The windows, having no glass, allowed hordes of flying ants to flurry in toward the light and crawl over his face and arms as he sat but he displayed no irritation, as carefully picking an ant away from his eye or mouth when its life seemed to be in danger by his lecturing. That presentation, and the strange relocation of attention through focusing on the breath, was all that was needed to set my dumber wheel rolling. If I could watch my thoughts and feelings and not react to them, if I could watch my mind then whose was this mind? And who am I? So I went to stay in Ajahn Allen's monastery in Nakhon Sawan and became his disciple. So did a few other Westerners. That stimulated plans in our teacher's mind. Ajahn Allen had always felt frustrated by the cultural overlays that 800 years of Thai culture had deposited on the Buddha's words. Some of the archaic rules seemed to him to be anachronisms, Nowadays he felt it was more suitable to be able to handle money in order to purchase books and other requisites for teaching, as well as to be able to travel to bring the Dhamma to those who might be interested to hear. This all made sense to me, but I did feel uneasy about his proposal to set up his own vihara in northern Thailand, and even more uneasy about his expectation that I be one of the teachers there. After three years I had no realisation to impart. Then again, Ajahn Allen, although tremendously concerned for the welfare of his disciples and a storehouse of knowledge on all forms of Buddhism, psychotherapy and related topics, didn't give you much peace of mind. He was always on the go. The whole practice was bound up with doing. Even the meditation felt like an activity aimed at getting you somewhere. Not that he bothered with meditation himself, he was too busy reading, teaching and writing. 
He was too busy to go out for arms, go to the daily chanting, attend the Patimoka recitations, or associate with the Thai bhikkhus. Under pressure from the abbot of the monastery, he would go to a few of the monastery ceremonies for the lay people. But to him, this was not the essence of Buddhism. It was all just custom, dead wood that kept most Thai bhikkhus complacently coasting on the simple faith of the laity. His vihara was going to be something different. It was. He set it up while I was in England and wrote to me about it while my six weeks in England extended into a proposed five months. Alan was optimistic as usual, but the Vihara was slow in getting going. For a start, it was off the beaten track, so only a few of the Westerners that he had hoped to encourage made it out there. There was no chanting or ceremony, so there was nothing to attract local villages either. Ajahn Allen had to go out for arms and walk 15 kilometres every day with a weak ankle that steadily worsened. So after 10 years in robes, he felt the way forward was to disrobe, go to Bangkok and teach meditation as a layman. We'd already lost contact by then. I was learning about the bhikkhu life from Ajahn Sumedho, who apparently still needed to meditate. I thought at first he couldn't have learned very much if he still needed to do it after 12 years as a bhikkhu. He was still stuck with the cranky old monastic conventions and still presided over morning and evening chanting and putty mocha recitations. But he felt good to live with. So Alan and I were faring on in different directions. The next I heard of him was a few months after we began to create a monastery out of a derelict house in West Sussex. A former disciple of Alan's, himself a bhikkhu just on the point of disrobing, wrote out of courtesy. Alan had committed suicide in Bangkok. The sequence after disrobing had involved difficulty in finding a means of livelihood, debt, depression, drinking alcohol, more debts and despair, and finally, drinking a glass of bleach. There was no explanatory note, but in an earlier letter he had asked that if anything happened to him, to pass everything he had to his former temple boys. My teacher, and more regret. Another good man, strangled in the web that his mind had spun. Having Buddhism figured out hadn't helped him in the end. The teaching of his death was his most powerful transmission. Who dies? Who lives? Why are we so obsessed with ourselves? It's when death's angel comes that you see all the acquisitions, positions and fancy games are empty. Coming out of one's own preoccupations is a matter of life and death. Nick Scott the last day at Nalanda, I went out for my usual walk down to the archaeological site. The walk there took me past the small college next door. 
This had been set up by the Indian government for the study of Buddhism, and many of the students were young Theravadan monks, mostly from the hill states on the border with Burma, which have small Buddhist populations. The monks were out playing volleyball with the other students on a dusty piece of ground outside the college. They seemed to be having a much easier time of being a monk than my companion. So did the Tibetan monks I'd seen enjoying themselves in the Nalanda ruins. But then they didn't seem to be taking much heed of the rules of training, which were, after all, laid down by the Buddha. So who was right? At times I really did wonder on this pilgrimage. Why did it have to be so hard? Asusuchito seemed even to want it to be difficult. I reflected that a lot of it was down to the difference between Southern Asians and Northern Westerners. Left to themselves, Southern Asians would just hang out, like the young Thai monks staying in the Wat who were rather aimlessly making their way around the Indian holy sites. In Thailand, one of the favourite words is sabai, which they use in the way the Spanish use manana. We, on the other hand, can be driven by the need to get something done, to achieve something, and in the spiritual life, to resolve all those emotional hang-ups. In Thailand, they don't have our hang-ups. They don't even have a word for guilt. So perhaps it depends on the culture. For them, the harshness of the Thai forest tradition makes sense as a counter to their easy-goingness. For us, perhaps there is a need for some kindness to ourselves, in with the practice. But then I've always been easy on myself. My companion did seem to be changing, though. Since Patna, things had got a lot easier. Maybe that was just because we'd got so run down, but I hoped it was more than that. Our last day at Nalanda was my birthday. I had walked down to the site to get some cold fruities to celebrate. They were sold by some of the stalls at the main entrance, and I had got into the habit of buying them when I passed. This time I bought seven, one for Ajahn Suchito, one for each of the Thai monks at the Wat, one for the Mei Chi, and one for me. Having distributed them, I went upstairs to drink mine on the flat roof of the Wat. It had been quite a nice day, and I felt the best I had since we started the pilgrimage. We had eaten well at Nalanda, and all that meat protein had got us feeling fit again. It had also helped Ajahn Suchito's foot. The temperature was now much more manageable. In fact, it felt very pleasant up there on the roof in the slight breeze, and I was looking forward to the next part of the journey. From the roof I could see the hills of southern Bihar rising out of the plain just beyond Rajgir. Our long trek across the plains would soon be over. Rajgir was our next stop, and after that, we would be in the forested uplands. Achen Suchito December 15th After five days on the roof, it was time to get walking. There had been some healing... What Ty had looked after as well. Just after the grey dawn broke, I bandaged up my foot and followed Nick across the fields. We stopped briefly at a small deserted Buddhist temple called Jagdishpur. More beautiful, more sacred to my mind, 
in the grandeur of Nalandar. We had our plans to be a Rajgir for the next dark moon and then on to Bodhgaya, where Nick had arranged some Christmas accommodation and possibly to meet Sister Tanisara, one of the nuns from Amrawadi, who was also on pilgrimage in India. That would be nice. Just stuff in the mind. All insubstantial and not the real thing at all. But what else is there? This is the stuff of aspiration as well as separation and grief. And it beckoned us on. Nothing much to do about it, but let go gracefully. How you come out of the unknown, transfigured or destroyed, must depend on how you go into it. After all, dark angels always play fair. You can trust them to shatter your world. Oh, mm-hmm.